The Inside Learning Podcast is brought to you by the Learnovate Center. Learnovate's research explores the power of learning to unlock human potential. Find out more about Learnovate's research on the science of learning and the future of work at learnovatecenter.org. The relationship between the organism and the environment is transactional. The environment grows the organism and the organism creates the environment. That is a quote by the philosopher Alan Watts. And it talks to how important the environment is for the organism and then how that influences the organism to create the environment and develop the environment. And I thought it was an absolutely beautiful quote to tee us up for today's show because we are joined today by the author of Designing for a Better World Starts at School and Play to Learn, Designing for Uncertainty. Roseanne Bosch, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to have you on the show, Rosanna. I probably surprised you with that quote. I thought it was just absolutely perfect to tee us up for today's show. And we're going to talk about your new book, Play to Learn, Designing for Uncertainty, which is absolutely the term of the day for the way the planet is today and indeed the business environment and the hybrid working world and indeed the hybrid learning world. But let's bring our audience up to speed with some of the concepts that Incredibly, you introduced pre-pandemic, and you had nothing to do with introducing this pandemic to prove yourself right, because (laughs) you introduced some of the topics that came to life in your book, Designing for a Better World Starts at School, where you said learning environments need to be inspired spaces that support learners' diversity and many learning scenarios. And you said back then that the first step is often to dump the classroom, which was so prophetic in many ways. Maybe you'll take us through the concepts of that book and indeed what you meant by this. The concept of the book Designing for a Better World Starts at School is firstly that I think when you go to school, when a child goes to school, it should be to enhance your abilities as a human being to develop yourself. And in a way, we have a school system that doesn't really respond to that. We have a school system that became a system that just kind of exists around itself and doesn't really look at a human being or a child, how does a child learn in its best way? And this is a little bit what happened to myself in my own experience and also to my children when they start to go to school. And I got very frustrated about it. First of all, um, I don't know, I think many people will be able to recognize that, is that when you have children, you can see that they're extremely creative and they enhance life and they start to learn by practically everything they do also by playing. And I felt a little bit that when they started at school, we started to to treat them more like beings that needed to be disciplined and learn how to sit still and learn how to listen and to do as they're told. And in this kind of uh, flow of, I could say, this kind of system, you know, I felt that my children at least were uh, losing their love of learning. So the main goal, I think, with uh, Designing for a Better World Starts at School in that particular book is to try to give a recipe, you know, to parents, to teachers, to people that are interested in, in this topic, that how can you create a context and environment that stimulates learning and that especially motivates children to learn at their maximum potential. And in the book, um, I'm an architect and a designer. In the book, I present a system which consists out of 
different learning situations related to different physical contexts. And uh, it presents, in a way, you could say an algorithm of spaces, an algorithm of situations that you can combine in endless different sequences or learning journeys. And that way, a learner or a teacher can compose a learning journey. So in the book, I present six different principles, I call them, or situations. And the first one we call uh, the cave, which is about uh, concentration. And they are physical uh, circumstances that allow you to focus and concentrate more. The second we call the uh, mountaintop. And the mountaintop situations, there are situations when you are, you know, sort of on top of the mountain presenting to the world. So you are either presenting or you getting something presented. This is a kind of a unidirectional uh, way of uh, communicating. So this can be you that listens to talk or you can watching a short movie. Then the third one we call the campfire, which is about collaboration and um, in a way being in a group, teamwork, situations that stimulate for teamwork, but also situations that make you aware of, okay, when we're sitting over here, we are more able to concentrate or where we're over there, we are able to work in different ways. Then the fourth one we call the uh, watering hole, which are physical situations in a context that allow for a high level of informal knowledge sharing or inspiration because you hear something the others do or because you see something. And then the fifth one we call hands-on. And these are situations where you are able to learn not only with your mind because somebody talks to you or because you read it, but also with your hands because you build it or you interact with it physically. And then uh, lastly, we have one which is most schools find this one the hardest one, which is called movement. And movement is about simply creating environments incorporated in the rest of our physical context where you can enhance your movement and you can get your pulse to go up and this is because we create in a way schools which are very much also about controlling our physical movement we create corridors and classrooms where you sit on a chair at a desk which is not really healthy for you and it's also not very stimulating for your brain and it's also for a lot of children very demotivating because they can't move so we try to put this as a component into the physical environments we design and this is also part of the one can say, recipe of designing for a better world starts at school. So these six situations, you can call them, you can design them in different ways, and then you can start planning with them in different ways, and you create a what we call a learning landscape. I love how your background as an architect and designer has come to life in a different field. I always find that that makes for the most interesting innovations when two different fields come together and create something absolutely new and that that was done because you had a need yourself in your own life and that drives the passion behind it as well i absolutely love the terms you picked as well they're absolutely perfect for both the educational system but also i find in the working world because we've seen mm -hmm. that during the pandemic where many people had walk and talk meetings you know on the phone as they went for a walk because they couldn't connect physically and they found new ways of working. And those ways of working seem to have stuck in some cases where we see people not wanting to go back to the office as well. Maybe you have some thoughts on that. Well, yes, I absolutely do. I think that um, in a way, what's behind, you know, the way, um, I, well, as you said, the reason why I wrote the book and the way I work and the reason why I do what I do is because I believe that we 
you know, um, it's actually a little bit, it's a little bit philosophical, <laughs> but uh, it's a little bit about, you know, what you can consider the, the value of your life. I mean, why are we here and what is the value of our life? And in a way, you know, I feel that instead of saying that you have to go to school to be disciplined into something you actually don't feel very motivated about, I think to learn is related to you as a human being growing and when you learn and you grow, that's actually a very positive thing. And it makes you feel enriched and it makes you feel like, wow, I'm alive. This is great. And this is all related to this, this, to our passion and our feeling of being, uh, our feeling of being motivated to what we do. And I think that's a little bit, you know, what we sometimes lose in our life when we work, but also when we send for children, when we send them to school is that we, you know, you go to school because you have to, not because you want to. But actually, school and learning should be something positive. And I think it's the same a little bit when we work. We forget a little bit, why am I doing this? For a lot of people, of course, some people are not in the situation to be, you know, able to question or to doubt what they do because they just need to earn the money. But a lot of people also have jobs where somehow they can think a little bit, okay, what is, what is, why am I doing this? You know, I mean, what is the value of my life? And here, I think that, it changes the perspective. And obviously, when you, you know, when we had Corona um, under the pandemic, so this is very existential, you know, not only were we threatened, you know, by, you know, we could get ill and sick. Also, we suddenly had to change our lives and the way we organize ourselves and where we were physically. So it makes you aware of how do I actually do things? So it was a short moment of clarification and a short moment of looking at yourself and saying, okay, right. <laughs> Why do I actually sit at a desk every day. I really wonder about that, actually. I wonder why we decided somehow along the line, you know, that the best way for us to live our lives is sitting on a chair behind a desk. Because to be honest, I don't think it is. And also, I know that when you do so, you uh, only use a very little part of your cap uh, capacities as a human being because you're very understimulated. I mean, you you have a you have a physical body, you have uh, well, the people that say five, some say six, seven, or eight senses, but you have different senses. And we could do so much more and have experiences so which could be so much more giving. And I think that um, when you start to be aware of that and you start to wonder um, about how could I enhance these experiences and you start to change that, and suddenly, you know, life can be actually a little bit more fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think that's so true. And there's a the saying by a French philosopher, Blaise Pascal, and he said, all of humanity's problems stem from mankind's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. And <laughs> I, I often think about, well, the pandemic made us have to do that. It It forced us to moments of quietude where we could think. And people who watch Netflix run out of all the Netflix shows <laughs> to, to Netflix chagrin. But as a result, they went for walks, they got back to nature, they started to rediscover themselves. And I think this is why we're seeing this quiet quitting as well, where people are kind of going, mm -hmm. you know what, I really, my boss is a total jackass, I don't like my job, whatever it might be. And it made us contemplate so many things. And one of those places that we contemplated and again, you were prophetic about was the workplace. And mm -hmm. 
indeed the education system. So I thought I'd use that as a segue for your second book then, where you introduce 10 golden rules of supporting human development in learning situations. And so this is the book play to learn designing for uncertainty. And what I thought here was, again, for audience, think about not just learning situations for children, or students, but actually for you, where we need more on ramps and off ramps in the education system for the workplace, because we have to upskill and unskill, as the case may be, unlearn and relearn in a world of rapid change. Hence the concept of designing for uncertainty as well. Maybe you'll take us through the overview of the book, the the main principle, and then we'll get to those 10 golden rules. Well, I think the main principle, or maybe the main kind of, again, it's a little bit philosophical, idea behind it, is again that I you know I really I don't think that's actually the whole problem saying that learning is only for children you know I mean I think that uh, we all need to learn during our entire life because this is how we are wired as human beings learning is not a word for for developing and uh, and growing as as a person and I think that is as much when you're in a workplace as when you're a child and you're growing up. Uh, it doesn't really matter. And the book is called Play to Learn because the way to learn, our access ticket, one can say, our natural born learning capacity, because we're born with a learning capacity, is our ability to play. Uh, a child that, uh, you know, a little, a little baby starts to discover the world based on their curiosity. And that leads them to wonder and interact with the world. And in this process of interaction, you explore things, you discover things, and you start to use what you discover in a proactive way. Um, and then you use it again, et cetera, et cetera. This is a kind of a cycle of learning, one can say. But this cycle of learning comes from our natural born curiosity and our ability to play. I mean, our ability to play is our natural, yeah, I don't know, it's like a tool we have. And I think we have it still, hopefully, when you're an adult. And the truth is that when you are, for example, at work and you uh, are in a, in a nice situation of work where you're excited and, you know, there's a kind of a sense of flow and everything. At least I'm, I'm you know, I'm having a creative work environment and I have architects and when we're working very hard on a project and we have this sense of flow and you forget the sense of time and you're very committed to your work, you're often actually uh, also growing, learning new things, and you're most likely actually playing as an adult. So I think that this concept of play, as I call in the book, play to learn, first of all, is not only about children. It's also because I've, I believe that we as adults should play more as well. That's the first part. And then the second thing um, about the book, what I try to do in the book is, you know, try to give, I say, the 10 golden rules. Um, I'm trying to sketch up you know, uh, a kind of uh, 10 different perspectives on how can you create environments and situations that will actually enhance and talk to this learning and playing potential uh, as a human being. And there are different perspectives in it. You know, it's about creativity, about inspiration. It's also about activating your senses in different ways. So you become physically more aware of the world surrounding you so you can actually proactively use it. It's also about you know, how can you uh, create an environment 
where you, um, you know, you feel how to say more, you know, you feel more in, empowered. And that's another word, you know, which uh, which we know is very stimulating. So the 10 golden rules sketch up a context in which you, child or adult, you know, will actually tap into your growing potential, meaning your learning potential. So like in your first book, Roseanne, you gave us the the design concepts, the mountain cave, the, the mountaintop, the cave, the campfire, the watering hole, hands-on and movement in Play to Learn, you give us 10 golden rules of supporting human development in learning situations. Again, I need to emphasize what you said there and what we truly believe together is that learning is not just about students in university. It's not about just even an MBA. It's about ongoing learning all the time. And the 10 golden rules support this. Maybe you'll take us through these at a high level. I call them golden rules, which is a bit, you know, counter... Well, it's a bit paradoxical because I don't believe in, you know, strict rules, but there are more guidelines in to give you an idea about how you can create a context which will enhance your learning and growing potential and eventually your playing potential, you know. So the first one, um, I say it's called place the learner at the center, place yourself at the center. That is basically to, you know, kind of sweep a power situation. Basically, it's this, if you tell somebody you have to do this and this and this and this and this, and you give them a clear order, a little bit like you're, you know, you're throwing a stick to a dog that runs after it. Uh, basically, most people will be less motivated and you will learn less. You are mostly learning at your highest potential when you have a high level of intrinsical motivation. And your intrinsical motivation is often uh, aroused by when you have a choice, when you actually choose what to do and uh, so and you can actually also you can develop this this sense of choice you can learn how to motivate yourself in learning situations once you have done that then you can actually learn how to learn which is uh, i think like kind of one of the superpowers one can say uh, you need um, if you want to uh, develop at your highest potential the rest of your life and again as i said earlier i i really think that no matter what age you have when you're learning you're growing and your life will feel so much more satisfactory now the next element the next golden rune I call it trust. I say human beings want to learn, make them feel trusted. This is basically that if you are in an environment where somebody doesn't trust you and says like, well, I have to force you to do something. I don't really believe you will do it. You have this sense of doubt surrounding you. At that moment, you will most likely actually respond to that by also starting to doubt yourself or actually not ex- not develop at your full potential. Again, this is especially very clear when we talk about, for example, children. Now, most schools, the architecture of a school, and I'm saying this as an architect, architecture of a typical traditional school is very similar to the architecture of a prison and very similar as well to the architecture of buildings that are only thought of as kind of efficiency without thinking that they're actually human beings on the inside. And human beings doesn't necessarily thrive by long straight corridors with little rooms you just walk in and then you sit down and you listen and you walk out like we are some kind of old-fashioned robots. So in an environment of trust, you are 
talking to somebody which is your coach or your teacher you get some assignments or you talk about what you're going to do and then you move independently and you do what you actually think you need to do and in this context you will thrive best now this is very contradictionary to most architecture schools where and i quote here um you know we don't want to have any corners where our you know young people can be sitting unseen because you don't know what they might do. And this is very typical for schools that they want to have this element of control, you know, like actually, like I said earlier, prison architecture. Now, the third rule we have, we talk about this can give, you know, give the learner responsibility for their own time and learning. Now, this is again, you know, if you can plan, if you can take you can be empowered and you can take responsibility of for what you're doing and the way you're planning your time according to what you're doing. Again, you get more empowered. Now, in this way, a lot of the rules are all about actually empowerment and giving you the the option of of choice. Then there is a there are several of the uh, you know the, what I call the golden rules, which actually are focused on what I call creativity. I believe that everybody is born creative. Um, but we sort of lose our ability to use our creativity throughout our life. We actually unlearn to be creative when we're at school. Children, uh, when they look at uh, children and they measure their creativity, usually they're extremely creative when they're five years old and they have lost up to 70% of the creativity by the age of 15. Now, mind me, not everybody has that, but it's, it's the school environment and the context of school has a, a large part of responsibility for that. So I think that everybody's creative. We just kind of unlearn. It's like a it's like a muscle we don't use. And if you never use it in the end, you don't even know you have it. So creativity can be stimulated. Creativity can be stimulated by an environment that asks you to to invent things, but it can also be stimulated by for example, having the unexpected in your environment, something that just suddenly makes you aware of that, hey, things don't have to be this way. They can be the other way around. And it can be extremely um, energetic and, and actually stimulate your creativity. And then there's this kind of very, and I think this is to get back to what you earlier said about the uh, the pandemic. This, I think, is very uh, important. And this is about our senses, activating our senses. In a way, we are very physically unaware of ourselves. I mean, we can sit watching, binging, you know, Netflix series hours at end. And somehow we feel maybe less satisfied in our life, but we don't really figure out why. And the main reason is because we are actually very understimulated because we're just watching a screen and while we're laying on the couch. The fact is that if you have different stimuli, because you walk in nature, because you move your body, because you feel the air, because you smell different things, you're actually getting a life which is so much bigger. This is one of the, uh, it's a little bit like if you would eat, you know, white rice every day without herbs and anything, on the long, on the long run, you would, you know, you would eat to get filled, but you would not eat out of pleasure. But if you eat food with a lot of different herbs and different stimuli, you uh, will eventually, you know, start to think, ah, you know what? I combine this ingredient with another. And we are actually doing that by design, which is a bit hard to to communicate in a podcast because you can't see it. It's by voice. But that means, for example, that you have 
you know, cozy nooks you can hide in with specific colors that you have uh, organic shaped uh, high desks that almost like water fluent in the middle of the space that you can write on all walls and you can make different collage so you can visually structureize your thoughts, um, et cetera, et cetera. So it means that you have a, an environment that through its physical kind of shape uh, inspires you to do things in different ways. And by doing them in different ways, you stimulate your yourself, your senses and your body in different ways. That point you made is so essential and so often overlooked. I think it's one of the biggest challenges in a working world where everybody's a specialist and that specialization leads to boredom for so many people because just because they're so good at looking after a certain element, a certain cog in the machine, they feel like a cog in machine. And I, I often think that that idea of job mobility, coupled with what you're talking about, which is like, well, job mobility will actually drive you to work in a different part of the organization or go and meet other people is so essential because we need that novelty in our work in order to get the best out of ourselves. Totally. We need an element of, like I said, it's, a, it's about being stimulated. It, like, you know, if you're understimulated, you get bored. Actually, you know, before when we said we talked about, when I talk about learning, I actually talk about growth. I talk about human development potential. I really, you know, believe that when you are understimulated, I mean, we talk often about stress as something that only happens to you when you work too much. And I believe that you also get stressed by actually being understimulated. It's like if you have this old-fashioned, you know, industrial approach to work when you're doing the same thing over and over and over again, you know. Um, boredom, because when we use the word boredom, by the way, you also said boredom. Boredom can be good and bad. You know, boredom can lead you to be more creative, you know, because you're sort of, you know, looking over the ocean and you're looking and looking and looking and in the end you're your thoughts become creative. Boredom can also be because you're very busy doing, you know, more or less the same things over and over again. They require your full attention, but in the same time, you're totally understimulated. And that, on the long term, will lead you to feel actually very unsatisfied and can even create a sense of, uh, of stress. I think that, you know, we really underestimate like I said before, you know, I really think, first of all, we underestimate our potential as human beings. We could do, we could have lives that are more variated, more stimulating, but we also, you know, underestimate uh, what happens to us when we actually don't live up to that. And that is the other part of the, you know, the medal, one can say, that if you're understimulated, you don't only not grow, you also you know, actually can become ill. Um, and that is, a, that's not a part of the same, you know, same story. In my book, Learn, Play to Learn, you know, I talk about something I call the pedagogy of play. And this is a bit interesting because the pedagogy, pedagogy of play or pop this is actually a word which I took from, um, it's from Project Zero at Harvard. They have a, a work group called the pedagogy of play. Very interesting, by the way. And they analyzed, um, in a way, the different steps of how do you play, but also how do you learn. And they're completely aligned. This is very interesting, um, actually. And they both come from the same place. I mean, we learn based on our natural born curiosity. 
but we also play based on our natural, you know, born, born curiosity. And this curiosity leads us to, you know, to wonder. And then from this next step, wondering, we start to explore. And then the next step is with this, you know, the, the things we discover exploring, we uh, we actually start to think and look at it and start to relate to how does it relate to what we already know. And this is interesting because our, um, how to explain this? It's like we are built up on all the experiences we have, you know. So if you have eaten something before, let's say you have eaten chicken and you know this is the taste of chicken. So if you taste something new that you've never tasted before, you will relate it to what you tried earlier. So you will say like, oh, this sort of tastes like chicken, but it's a little different. And there you have a new experience. We do the same thing with shapes, with words, with sounds. So we relate it to what we know. And then we, you know, compare it. And we say, okay, it's this is, you know, 60% the same, 40% different. And then we add it to our vocabulary or to our, you know, range of tastes or our range of colors we've seen or situations, etc. And use it proactively the next time it comes in handy. And this is a way how we kind of accumulate knowledge. And it's a bit funny because we do it when we play, you know, you're like, oh, this sort of like looks like an airplane and you start playing with it. But you can also you use it also when you're creative, composing uh, a painting, when you're uh, an artist and you use it actually proactively when you are, you know, doing other types of works. And this cycle of what we call the pedagogy of play is also the different steps of learning and are also in a way in if you ask me you know kind of a dna of growth for a human being because this is the way we develop as human beings roseanne we've we've covered so so much and uh, there was one thing i really really wanted to cover and it's something that probably dawned on some people or maybe the thought crossed their mind as they listened to us was your work, as we said, was redesigning spaces. And I often see this. I cycle around this wherever I can. And I often see these empty buildings. And I wonder to myself, all the design and all the work that went into those seems to have gone to waste. And this, well, I said it to you off air, you were like, well, this came up for me as well. And people were like, oh, poor Roseanne. She must be out of a job now because she designs these spaces. And that is not the case at all. Maybe you'll share this as a final thought for our audience. Yeah, it was. Yes, I will. It was really funny in the corona or in the pa pandemic that people would say like, oh, now you're probably out of a job. And the after a short moment, the, the opposite happened. A thing is that what we realized is that our, you know, the most potent, the, the most powerful thing, you know, that we have is that we use design as a tool and it's the connection in between the physical environment and your body because in the end of the day you know although i mean some people might be very spiritual i mean we have a physical body and our body reacts and interacts with the surrounding the world surrounding us and it's in this interaction with the world surrounding us yeah that we can actually enhance also what happens in our mind so what we start to focus on instead of you know, basically saying, okay, you need to paint the room red to do something or you need to have a desk which is 100 centimeters high or something in that sense. We start to focus on how can I make you aware that how you can use the physical environment to enhance whatever activity or things you want to do. So this is also a little bit, you know, we went from ditch the classroom to out of the classroom, you know, outside of the building. 
starting to look at the potentials you have in your physical environment as much outside of the building as inside of the building. So this totally changed the perspective. And we start to talk about design as a tool, a tool for, and then you can just fill it out yourself. And this is a little bit what happened as well with the different books I wrote, because they give you an algorithm, they give you a tool, a recipe if you want, but you can actually format and shape it the way you want to use it. And it's a very, it's a very different perspective. Using almost like Lego bricks, use what yes, pieces exactly. you want yourself. Yeah, modular. I love that. I love that. But it comes with, but it comes with your. Uh, you have to be aware. Like I said before, people are physically not aware. It's like we de we deconnected with ourselves. We deconnected with who we are. We deconnected with our body. We can sit eight hours on a chair without actually noticing it. First, after twenty years, when we certainly got a you know a bad a sour back. And, you know, we, we, we are deconnected to how the physical environment impacts us. But it does. I can actually make people, you know, I can make people feel good or bad when they come into a building in the morning with the physical environment. Um, people just, it's, it's like a, it's like we are aware of when something tastes good or bad, but we're not aware about what actually the physical environment does with us because we have unlearned it to be sensitive in that sense. And that brings us beautifully back to where we started with that Alan Watts quote, where exactly. the interaction between the organism and the environment is transactional. And one feeds the other, and then it feeds back, and it creates this loop. And I absolutely love the work you do. Where where can people find you, Roseanne, to find out more about your work and your books, etc.? Well, I mean, the easiest way is, of course, going on the website of roseannebosch.com. Uh, and here you will find... You know, you can also, of course, buy the books on Amazon and things like that. But I mean, when you go on our website, you will find all the books and all the you know different projects we've done all over the world. And so just I think that's the easiest. And just for our audience who are listening to us, it's R O S A N because it's spelled differently in different parts of the world, and it's B O S C H Bosch dot com. Roseanne Bosch, author of Play to Learn: Designing for Uncertainty. And Designing for a Better World starts at school. Thank you for joining us. You're welcome. Inside Learning is brought to you by the Learnovate Centre in Trinity College, Dublin. Learnovate is funded by Enterprise Ireland and IDA Ireland. Visit learnovatecentre.org to find out more about our research on the science of learning and the future of work.